Hey friends, welcome to season four of the No More Silos podcast with me, Dr. Erica Santiago. As your host, we'll be exploring the letter to the Hebrews. It is an exhortation filled with timeless truths and theology, deep insights, and a call to faith. And we will also uh, be talking about our new collection of Bible study resources available exclusively on our Patreon page. Join our Patreon community to gain access to these resources and become a vital support supporter of the No More Silos mission. Let's remember that our faith is a shared endeavor, so let's grow and learn together. Thank you so much for those of you who are already supporting us on Patreon. We really appreciate your support. It allows us time and resources to be able to continue to develop new content just for you. And now, today's episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of No More Silos. My name is Erica and this is my podcast. This is a podcast all about cultural Christianity that really dives into some of the history and in this series that we've been doing on the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, we've really been focusing on theology. One of the questions that I am always asking whenever I teach Bible study, I kind of preface everything with this question. And I like to ask the question, where do our ideas come from? Because here on No More Silos, we're, we're trying to tear down or break down the barriers to learning, the barriers to understanding. And a lot of times it's because we have information that is incredibly siloed. And the information being siloed means that We've got stuff in buckets, for lack of a better term, right? It, it's, 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 we've got data over here, we've got data over there, and the left hand's not talking to the right hand. And then what happens is we watch the evening news, or we sit in church on Sunday morning, or we catch a out of context clip, video clip of a sermon, uh, and we make decisions based on that. And we don't realize that the decisions that we're making are either ill-informed or or they lack information. And so that's what No More Silos is about. Just whatever is going on in my world, in questions people are asking me, in my role in, uh, in ministry, or just I'm watching something on the news and scratching my head. And so recently I was reading a book, uh, and I think I shared it on the podcast last year, about the dechurched and this idea or a concept of people who used to go to church. And there's all these folks, and I even sat in a meeting last week um, where someone, a, a pastor said, I feel like we are post-Christian. And I hear that all the time on some of the po- other podcasts that I listen to on church leadership. They talk about being post-Christian, that people just are not they're not Christian like they used to be. It's not like grandma and grandpa's church. But what I'm realizing, a lot of us in my generation, Gen X, we didn't grow up in church. I mean, I did, but my husband didn't. Um, A lot of my friends didn't. Like when it was invite your friend to church day, I had my pick of like a dozen different kids I could invite from school or my neighborhood and say, hey, will you go to church with me on Sunday? So I get a sticker to put in my Bible to say, I invited my unchurched friend to church. So you have all these people who didn't grow up in church. You have a lot of people, though, who've left church. 
who have who are de-churched and they left for some really good reasons, usually because of shallow discipleship, which is why I'm always promoting Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, um, because he talks about shallow Christianity in that, like, you know, we can't just do the surface work. And so we've been doing this this series on as on the book of Hebrews, and I'm working out and part of this is me just talking through my own thoughts as I'm putting together a Bible study lesson that I'll put out there um, eventually on on our Patreon page on Hebrews, teaching through Hebrews. So you're not going to get a whole lot of scripture um, like you would in a normal Bible study on the podcast. Uh, Because as we're, I want you to go and read Hebrews for yourself. And I, I want you to think about what it is that the writer of Hebrews is saying, and then how that aligns with what you think about God. And that's what theology is. Theology is the effort to academically understand and know God. Our experience filters influence our theology just as much as culture and history, whether we realize it or not. And so today on the podcast, we're talking about understanding how some of the generations before us understood the second coming of Christ. So this is episode five out of, I don't know how many, I I know I've got at least one more planned, (laughs) Um, talking about the various doctrines of Christianity, the theology that we uphold as Christians, as believers, based on what is written in the letter to the Hebrews, which I believe was originally written not as just a letter, although we call it a letter, but it it lacks some of the um, markers of an epistle. There's no greeting necessarily, but it actually reads more like someone's sermon, that it was an exhortation, that somebody wrote this and then preached it. Because if you say it out loud or listen to it out loud on your Bible app, you feel like you're sitting in a sermon because they make references um, to Scripture. And you know, and I've said this before on the podcast, whenever someone in the New Testament makes reference to Scripture, they're talking about what we call the Old Testament. And in that, they are not considering what they're writing to be Scripture, even though we do. So kind of, you know, picture the big picture of the timeline. So thanks again for joining me as we continue talking about Hebrews. Last week, we talked um, from a theological perspective. We were focused on uh, ecclesiology. Today, it's eschatology. And my original uh, plan was to talk about both in the same episode, just from, for the sake of timing. But as I neared the 30-minute uh, mark or so on that one, I realized, you know what, let's just make eschatology its own episode. Um, why have you have to pause and come back when you have more time? So I hope if you're out exercising or walking or on your commute, that this um, is good information for you. I pray that it is something that helps you understand a little bit more about what you believe and why you believe it, or maybe what your parents or friends or loved ones believe and why they believe it, uh, and maybe even help them believe it better. Because Jesus is definitely coming back, but maybe not the way that you think he is. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament helps us to understand this. And um, I actually have a couple of other episodes here on No More Silos where I talk about eschatology because in the last year or so, it's become a topic of interest, not just for me. Um, I've actually always been interested. And if you guys, uh, for those of you who've been Christians for a long time, I'll let you in on a little secret. I don't tell everybody this. My husband thinks I'm bonkers, but I actually own a copy of the Jack Van Impey Prophecy Bible. I do. 
that's how long I've been interested in eschatology. But anyway, so trust me when I tell you, um, you definitely want to check out the other two episodes where we talk about rapture theology in one, because that's apparently sent a lot of people to therapy. And um, the other one actually has to do with colonialism and what's going on in Israel and Palestine today, the latest conflict, which I believe as of this weekend, they said it was like 100 days, which is really not cool, but um, it is uh, the world that we live in. So check out my episode from last year on Rapture Theology for more on the topic, but rest assured that the Left Behind books and movies are fiction. Um, So what does the Bible actually teach about the second coming of Christ? Well, there's four main views on eschatology within Christian theology, but the one that we're going to talk about today, the one that I don't actually believe in, is dispensationalism. Um, And that's the idea that there's a rapture, we're going to be caught up in the air um, to meet Jesus and everybody's going to disappear and it's going to happen suddenly and um, yeah. So there's not a whole lot of support for that, but I want to give you some background on how we got there. But I do want to recommend a book. Um, There is a book by Sky Jatani. It came out recently um, about heaven. What if Jesus was serious about heaven? And he talks through in a very devotional style uh, way, easy to follow um, about heaven and explains what's actually in the Bible versus what our cultural Christian ideas are. Um, a lot of the stuff that we've got, some a lot of the ideas that we have, thinking about where do I, our ideas come from, it, we kind of made those up. It, it's culturally Christian. But it's one of those things that when you want to talk about it, it's not at your friend's funeral or your loved one's funeral. It's just, it's, that's not the time to sit there and point out people's um, issues or, or um, n- incorrect ideas about heaven, um, because of course we want to believe that our loved one has gone to a better place. And I'm not saying they haven't, I'm just saying that we're, I'll have to do a whole episode just on that, I guess. Okay. But get the book in the meantime. Something I read a while ago in my studying of eschatology suggested that the social justice movement of the 19th century, that would be the uh, 1800s, and the reorientation of faith for many Christians after the Civil War led to pushback against living for Jesus in the here and now. What do I mean by that? Well, you have on the one side the people who were enslaved, um, writing Negro, what we call Negro spirituals, and they're, and those spirituals served two purposes. One, it was a uh, a way of understanding their their relationship with God and and uh, worshiping God and and singing about it. But on the other hand, they were also encoded messages. Um, so steal away, steal away, Jesus was not about the rapture, but it was about actually like leaving the plantation or or songs like swing low sweet chariot uh coming for to take me home you know it was a lot of them have had encoded messaging so i think that's important to understand from that perspective but the other thing that was going on and and this is the part that i think really led to some of the pushback uh, against living for jesus in the here and now was you had the people who were uh, able this the slave owners who had to really there were those people who were fighting for abolition who understood the gospel as being for everyone 
but even they still, there were still some within that group had certain prejudices. Like they it was for the gospel was for everyone, but they were still looking at things from a very class uh, segregated society. But you had folks who really didn't see black people as human. And that, that was a huge shift. I mean, think about the theological shift that has to happen in the mindset of someone who fought really hard for the Confederacy. And then to be told that, wait a minute, these people are actually people. And if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you got to reconcile that. And so there, there was a whole lot going on in the second half of the 19th century, theologically, uh, not to mention the, the, women, the, the uh, suffragist movement, uh, the rights of women, uh, people realizing, you know, that going on. So the Lord's Prayer says, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is telling us how to live now, not later, but now. But if you spent your entire life believing that people of a lower class or another race were not human, remember the immigrants were coming in, this is when the laws were against the Chinese immigrants on the uh, West Coast, all of that was happening in the latter part of the 19th century. And so you have this idea that, that people are not human. Your theology had you telling them and yourself that it might be in the great by and by that you will have peace and joy and a life abundance in Christ. And so... There were these social justice movements that were that had cropped up in that time period in the nineteenth and earliest twentieth early twentieth century that had efforts or, or towards equality that rubbed people the wrong way, and this upset the foundation of the theology that they built their Christianity upon. Um, so, what you end up with is. You have formerly enslaved and enslaved people who might not have dared to dream about realizing their freedom in this lifetime. But now that that's happened, they're like, wow, this is thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? But you have another group of people who did not win that war looking to escape to heaven. And suddenly that sounded like a good idea. And what we get is this escapist theology about heaven. So what's going on in the social justice theology? I'm going to, let's, let's put a pin in Hebrews for just a moment. I'm going to get back there, but a pin in Hebrews just for a moment and talk about what is social justice theology in the 19th and 20th centuries? What does that really look like? Well, there was a significant social and political transformation, as I just pointed, post-Civil War, right? You've got the Industrial Revolution, you have um, the uh, railroads and the steel, and um, you have all these folks suddenly that are multi millionaires you have uh, JP Morgan loaning money to the US government you have uh, the immigrants from Europe all of this stuff is going on along with the rise of various movements advocating for social justice and in response to these challenges several three theologians emerged as influential voices remember I'm saying in this whole series on Hebrews the reason you want to study the book of Hebrews is because we all should be theologians. So several theologians emerge as influential voices that shaped the discourse on social justice theology. A lot of you think it maybe this only came up in the civil rights era in the 1960s, like 50 years ago. One of the things I saw online yesterday, as I'm recording this, yesterday was uh, Martin Luther King Day, and one of the things that Dr. Ber- uh, Reverend Dr. Bernice King pointed out on social media is, is she said, you know what, I'm going to share this year intentionally color photos of my parents marching and speaking in in the civil rights movement, because we need to understand that this wasn't that long ago. 
Had Dr. King lived, yesterday would have only been his 95th birthday. He would have only been 95. And I say that, and, and it's, it's chilling to think, because it really wasn't that long ago. It just really wasn't that long ago. And when we think about theologians, what it means to be a theologian, and I'm pretty sure I've said this before in the podcast, Dr. King's PhD was in systematic theology. He was legit a theologian. That was That is what he went to school for. He was a theologian. He understood uh, and analyzed comprehensively the theological responses to social justice that shaped even his time period, not the time period before. So when we talk about the folks that I'm going to share about now, these are people he also studied their work in real time to what he was doing and understood that it was as a Christian, as a believer, looking at how this fits in the historical context and the various theological perspectives around social justice. And Dr. King chose to go the nonviolent route. And uh, not to say any of these folks that I'm about to tell you about did too, but I, I want you to realize he wasn't over here on the, he, he was special, but he wasn't over here on his island by himself. There was a guy whose last name I'm about to butcher. His name was Walter Rauschenbusch. Um, he was a Baptist minister and theologian in the late 19th century. He developed, uh, he had played a p- pivotal role in developing the theology of the social gospel. And he was influenced by the prevailing social conditions that were going on. And he wanted to reconcile Christianity with the pressing issues of poverty, inequality, and exploitation. This was something that was going on. Remember, there's no public school back then in the 19th century. And so if your kid didn't go to school and you lived in a city, they were working. And there was a lot of exploitation going on. Um, In his seminal work, Christianity and the Social Crisis, he called for the church's active engagement in social reform, emphasizing the importance of addressing systemic injustice. He also argued, Rauschenbusch, uh, argued that Jesus's teachings and the kingdom of God were inherently concerned with social and economic equality, and his theology inspired numerous Christians to work towards the alleviation of social suffering and the establishment of a just society. Um, another uh, pr- prominent theologian um, in the early 20th century was Reinhold Niebuhr, and his focus was more realism and ethical action. He was a prominent Protestant theologian and ethicist. He responded to the challenges of the 20th century world with a nuanced approach to social justice. His theology, what he thought about God, emphasized the complexities of human nature and the limitations of social progress. He wrote a book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. He argues in that book that human sinfulness pervades all social structures, leading to systemic injustice. And he called for Christians to engage in a realistic assessment of power dynamics and to act ethically within the limitations of a fallen world. Niebuhr's theology influenced the civil rights movement and subsequent social justice movements by providing a framework that balanced idealism with a sober understanding of the complexities of social change. So you have Niebuhr, you have Rauschenberg, you have these people, and these are white people, by the way, who are observing there's something wrong with this system. And I said previously in, uh, as we've been talking about Hebrews, how 
it's communal. It is not an, it's not individual. The structures that Jesus talks about in Luke 4, uh, freeing the oppressed, were radical. The structures that Paul subverts in Ephesians uh, and in Galatians were radical because there was a systemic way of doing things in the Roman Empire, in that culture, in that time period that needed to be fixed and addressed, not unlike ours. So when we ask the question, where do our ideas come from? Well, here's some places that some of our ideas come from. But also the question of what is the good news of the gospel to people? What does that look like? And the way Jesus defines it in scripture is not what we usually get told. And I think that's a big part of why people leave church, because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Beyond these two people, there were other influential theologians and and figures in the development of social justice theology in the 19th and and 20th centuries. Um, In the Catholic Church, there was a papal papal encyclical that addressed issues of workers' rights and economic justice and the dignity of labor. Um, There was a woman, Dorothy Day, she uh, was co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. She advocated for nonviolent resistance and the creation of communities committed to addressing poverty and social inequality. And of course, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr., who was a Baptist minister, a civil rights leader, Uh, with a PhD in systematic theology. He combined theological insights with the principles of nonviolence and love to challenge racial segregation and discrimination in the United States. In Peru, in South America, you have Gustavo Guterres, who was also a theologian, and he was a founder of liberation theology there and emphasized the preferential option for the poor and the need for structural change to address social injustice. So what is the impact and the legacy of all these things? The Black Lives Matter movement, um, uh, Che Guevara, the, the social movements we saw in the 50s, 60s, 70s, in the last century, all of these people were people who thought deeply about what they believed and maybe even read the Bible and said, you know what, that's not what it says here. So their theological insights inspired individuals and communities to engage actively in social reform, challenging oppressive systems, advocating for the rights and the dignity of all people. And so when someone tells you, oh, this is some newfangled thing that somebody just came up with because of George Floyd, no, it's not. When people are frustrated and they're marching today, they're frustrated and marching because their great-grandparents did too. Um, And it played, the social gospel movement in the last two centuries played a crucial role in shaping progressive Christianity and influencing subsequent movements for civil rights and social equality. And the interesting thing is that we should be studying their contributions and drawing inspiration from these figures to actively engage in addressing social injustice. I love the the justice video that uh, the Bible Project has, because they go through the uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament pointing out all of these things. This is why the anti-CRT folks present an illogical argument. You know, like um, When I was homeschooling, I made sure my kids read a book called Art of the Argument, 
because I wanted them to understand how a straw man argument is made, how uh, people will give you an illogical argument or a logical fallacy to try to make their point, or when they're cherry picking verses out of the Bible, how they uh, they're doing you an injustice and themselves because they don't know what they believe; they're just making stuff up as they go. But. The anti-CRT folks want you to believe that this is something brand new. We've been having this conversation for more than 200 years. And people have noticed that the empire is not Christianity. The empire is the system, the system of government, the political system, the system of wealth and economics that is there. And so now, With that in the back of your mind, with that foundation, that historical foundation, let's talk a little bit about how the book of Hebrews offers glimpses into the future hope of believers. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 talks about Jesus' second coming, emphasizing that he will appear a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And Hebrews chapter 12 encourages believers to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, anticipating the eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. This understanding of eschatology reminds us to live with an eternal perspective, eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises. In chapter 10, it says, under the old covenant, talking about the Old Testament, the old covenant, uh, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for our sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in a place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy." What is eschatology? Eschatology is the Christian teaching about the last things, about heaven and hell and death and judgment and the second coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. And uh, Scott McKnight in his uh, The Second Testament changes the word kingdom of God to empire of God. Because here's the thing, at, at the end of the day, Americans, we don't get kingdom. We really don't. I mean, there's a few outliers, folks, that get that. We are, uh, we follow the the uh, British royalty, the royal family over there out of pure fascination. But we don't understand it. We don't understand what it means to be subject to a king because we live in a democracy. Well, we think we do anyway. But we don't have a good understanding of hell. Um, we've got folks who have created a, their theology around just ditching hell altogether. And I, I think that's a little extreme. Honestly, that's my perspective. Um, I think hell is a very real place. But I also noticed that in the New Testament, the New Testament church didn't lead with that. Hey, you better get your life together and follow Jesus or you're going to hell. Like it, there wasn't this either or proposition. Death isn't just death as, a, as, as your body dies, but hell and death to me are something that it, it puts us away from God. Like we want to be with God. To be absent from the body is to be with Christ. That's what we should be telling people at funerals. Um, Judgment, the second coming, the kingdom of God. And so where else can you read besides Hebrews about the second coming and the last things? 
Philippians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapters 15 and 16, Revelation 21, Matthew 24, uh, John chapter 1, Mark, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. In the book of Hebrews, though, Christian discipleship is intricately connected with eschatological perspectives, providing believers with a forward-looking motivation for their journey of faith. It emphasizes the concept of endurance and encourages disciples to persevere in their commitment to Christ, pointing towards the eschatological hope of the promised rest. I'm going to talk about that rest in our next episode. The eschatological dimension underscores that the ultimate fulfillment of believers' faith lies in the future realization of God's promises. And Hebrews teaches us that a genuine disciple remains steadfast in anticipation of the eschatological consummation when Christ's kingdom is fully established. The letter envisions a horizon that inspires us as followers of Jesus, to live in faithful obedience, anchored in the assurance of the coming fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Therefore, discipleship for us, according to Hebrews, is not only about the present, but it is profoundly shaped by a future hope that informs our attitudes, our actions, uh, our perseverance as we eagerly await the fulfillment of God's promises. So I I want you to think about it. I want you to to read Hebrews if you haven't done so already, or go back and reread um, the parts that talk about later, that talk about what's coming. Jesus tells us that we are living in the now, but there's also a not yet that exists. And that's when he returns. And the idea is that it's he's bringing heaven and earth back together because that's what is described in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. Like we're, he's he's setting stuff right. So I'm going to give you a broad overview of how some of the different Christian denominations uh, may. Uh, actually, let me put it this way: I'm going to give you a broad overview of the hist- history of eschatological beliefs. I think that's important as well. Like we've talked today about the social gospel in the last couple of centuries, and we talked about the influence of social justice and how um, I believe that that had a huge influence towards the end of the 19th century on rapture theology um, and colonialism. It was a way to, and and some of you might be thinking, ah, a way to control people. I don't think it was so much a way to control people. I, I believe that the minister in Scotland who came up with this idea was in was was intentionally trying to do good things but i think that the idea that we're going to escape this world because we don't like the changes we don't like how we we're equal to one another uh, that everybody who's human is made in the image of god I, I realize that that is really hard for some folks so how did how how do we see this throughout the history? Flow with me here for a few minutes. In the early Christian period, first through third centuries, the earliest Christians were influenced by Jewish apocalyptic literature, and they believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And the focus was on the establishment of God's kingdom and the final judgment. I want to point out here that you'll have some people, you run across some people today who will talk about the book of Daniel and the prophecies there um, and the prophetic literature, the apocalyptic literature. 
part of the book of Daniel and uh, Revelation and how people were looking for Jesus to return like tomorrow or next week because of the way that Jesus talked in the that we see in the gospels. And uh this is this is the focus that was going on in the first few centuries. That hey, this is going to happen and it's going to happen pretty soon. But my take on that is that really what we're looking at is live in the moment. Live in now. Be Christ like now. The second period that I want to talk about is what's known as the patristic period. That's the early church fathers, fourth through seventh centuries. And here we have uh, writings from church fathers like Augustine um, of Hippo, and he shaped eschatological views in his work, City of God. And I I highly recommend it. um, If you don't read it all the way through yourself, find a good summary of it. But he emphasizes the idea of two cities. He gives like this whole analogy. And Augustine, his quote-unquote college degree, if you will, was in rhetoric. He was good at communicating. He was very good at communicating, and he wrote extensively, and he had small groups that got together and had these conversations and discussions, and he was teaching, and he was really thinking deeply about this from a theological standpoint. And guess what? Most of our Western theology is based on his work, even though most Western uh, ministers probably don't realize that he was African. But, you know, that's another story for another day. Maybe Black History Month, we'll talk about that later. But his work, City of God, emphasizes the idea of two cities, the city of God and the city of man, and the unfolding of God's plan in history. One of the things that um, has stuck with me over the years from City of God is the Permixta Ecclesia, this idea that Augustine had about the fact that everybody's church is going to have some folks that are basically weeds. There's going to be folks, because he, he operated in a time of, uh, wait, there were waves of persecution to be a Christian. And so you had folks that were in the church that they were basically calling fakey fake Christians because they, if the, you know, if the Roman guards came along, they were ready to just give up and say, you know what? Uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to be a Christian today because I'm not trying to go to jail. And you're going to have those folks. And those folks to me today are the people that show up on Sunday and they make a, they rush for the door. They don't really lay down any seed or, or roots to grow in the church community, to build relationships of accountability. They're just really there for, I don't know, entertainment, um, a spiritual boost, and then they go on about their lives the rest of the week. And Augustine talks about that in the fourth century. Like, literally, he does. The next period is the medieval period, the 8th through the 15th centuries. Now, we're going to, of course, stay in the Western side of things because we live in the West, and I want you to understand our history. So the medieval history, the medieval period, 8th through 15th century, the views in eschatology were influenced by a combination of Augustine's teachings and apocalyptic expectations. I've got a book on my shelf about how in 1000 or 999 AD, people went bazonkers because they were looking to the skies, looking for Jesus and his white horse. Because they're like, well, maybe it's who you were waiting for year 1000. And most of you listening to this uh, podcast right now were probably alive in 1999. You know, there's a whole documentary on Y2K on um, one of the streaming things I, I watched. It was interesting. Brought back a lot of memories. Anyway, they were looking at 
apocalyptic expectations. Uh, in fact, some medieval theologians explored ideas like purgatory and this idea of an intermediate state between heaven and hell. And if you grew up Catholic, you're probably very well versed in this idea. And um, yeah, so that's where that idea comes from. Purgatory does not show up on the books until sometime during the medieval period. Then you have the 16th century, the Reformation era, where you have reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin who retained some traditional eschatological views, but there was a renewed emphasis on the authority of Scripture and the importance of individual salvation. And so there was this idea suddenly that, hey, what does the Bible actually say about this? And what is my personal role and responsibility for myself in all of this? Which leads us to the next period, which is post-Reformation, the 17th and 18th centuries, where you've got a plethora of Protestant denominations by now that have developed a very, very broad and diverse sense of eschatological views. Some focused on the millennial reign of Christ, and some interpreted biblical prophecies differently. Some people, you know, and really when you think about it, the thing with Protestantism that's different than the Catholic Church or any of the ecclesial uh, systematic uh, churches, even in the East, is Orthodox churches, is nobody's in charge. Like, literally, the pastor was it. And so if the pastor read Daniel and was up late at night and goes, you know what, I think this is it, guys then that's what they focused on. Or the pastor was really interested in Isaiah or the, or the pastor was very interested in Revelation. Like that's what they tended to focus on because you have that breadth of uh, flexibility in Protestant, Protestantism that you don't have maybe in the Catholic church because the authority of scripture is there. But one of the things that has gotten us into trouble since then is the uh, misplaced authority of people's interpretations of scripture. So then you have the post-Reformation period. You have the 17th and 18th century. Um, and that's when you get the, um, and I've, I think I've talked about this before in the podcast when we've talked about church history, you get the Enlightenment period. Um, this is the time where people are like, let's look at science. What does science say? Um, so we have different Protestant denominations um, operating with their different views um, and still focusing on different things that they find in the Bible, but getting um, on occasion caught up in uh, different details for a whole host of reasons. And that's how we end up with rapture theology in that time period. Um, and by the uh, 19th century, the rise of dispensationalism, dispensationalism gains popularity through the teachings of John Nelson Darby. And dispensationalism emphasizes a future literal fulfillment of biblical prophecies, including a pre-tribulation rapture. And I, I outlined some of this in our uh, earlier episode about eschatology, so I'm not going to spend a whole, whole lot of time walking through all the different things. But in the 20th century, dispensationalism continues to influence many evangelical Christians and other perspectives such as post-millennialism, amillennialism become prevalent within the various denominations. So everybody's off on their own tangent here. And then when we get to the now period... We have a variety of eschatological views that coexist within Christianity. And so as you have the rise of the non-denominational church, really it depends upon the pastor and what they understand. 
um, where they went to seminary, um, what their what their understanding is, and how they're going to teach about it. So there's some focus on the cultural and social implications of eschatology, while others maintain traditional perspectives. And it's important to note that people's views about the end times, heaven and hell, and the second coming of Christ and death, and all of that are going to be diverse and within even different Christian traditions. Everyone's got their nuanced interpretation based on their own theological frameworks. Why am I telling you this? Because I want you to be a theologian. I want you to understand what you believe and do your own homework and read what does it say in the Bible and go, okay, what else do I need to read to help me understand this. So what is your theological framework? Many of us don't realize where our, where our ideas are coming from. And so in my episode on the impact of colonialism on our views in eschatology, uh, I discuss how the Palestinian conflict with Israel is viewed by some through a filter of Christianity based on how on their theological framework about the end times. There's folks that actually believe that because they believe Jerusalem factors into it, they've got a whole idea about where what Israel is supposed to be doing that clouds their judgment around how Israel is not being Christ-like in treating the Palestinians. So there's an episode on rapture anxiety. There's an episode on uh, where I get in the weeds about dispensationalism and amillennialism and the other uh, millennialisms and Zionism and all that stuff, because we should all be theologians because we really need to take time to study what God's word actually says and not allow politicians or politically motivated preachers to completely inform our theological views. So exploring the book of Hebrews can deepen our understanding of fundamental Christian concepts and empower us to grow as disciples of Jesus. I highly recommend reading the book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, an Introduction to Thinking and Living Theologically by Beth Felker Jones. In fact, there's a new um, edition that came out last spring. One last thing. A while, while back, I did an episode on secular humanism. And one of the things I learned through my research for that episode was that even groups of secular humanists or agnostics or even atheists look for community. In fact, a lot of the recent social science research points to community as key for people, regardless of religious or non-religious affiliation. And so all that said, there's a group that is growing called the nuns or nothing in particular. And this group checks that box that they are not Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or atheist. They are nothing in particular. In fact, some of them also check, as we discussed in the last episode, the spiritual box. My generation, Gen X, many of us who may not have grown up in church or a religious context, our parents are the baby boomers, the rebels of the 60s, the hippies who by the 1980s were yuppies, upwardly mobile and career focused, not that interested in religion, no room for it, or lots of room for it, and it was part of their routine, but not an in-depth discipleship version of it. And so a lot of my friends didn't go to church when I was a kid. And on top of that, I was an extreme example because I, I'm a pastor's kid. So I went to church all the time. And 
But I grew up in a community of Jesus followers. So where did my friends get their community? Well, they got it in the neighborhood. They got it in the uh, groups that their parents belonged to, social groups like the Kiwanis or the Lions Club or um, sororities or fraternities. Social scientists and pollsters categorize folks as unchurched, dechurched. Those are people who used to go versus people who never went. Nuns, mature or maturing Christians. Why do we need to be theologians? Well, if we want to disciple or make disciples, we need to know where we're start, what we're starting with. Has your friend ever gone to church before? Are we asking questions? Did their parents or family go to church? If they went to church, what kind of church did they go to? Do you have a basic understanding of the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism, if it matters? Um, do you understand the difference between a Jehovah's Witness and a Presbyterian? Like, if they've never gone, and in a lot of cases, if they're de-churched, they probably will have questions about theology. And guess what? They'll assume you know. Pushing them off to your pastor, your church leader might sound like a good idea, but I'll bet your Muslim friend or Jewish friend doesn't need to do that. You know why? Because they know. Their religious experience, their religious experience filter prioritizes education. American Christianity, culturally, not so much. And so what does discipleship in a healthy church culture look like? It looks like intentional relationships, mentorship, uh, an emphasis where mature believers are investing in the lives of newer members, facilitating spiritual growth. There's small group dynamics that uh, foster community, allowing for deeper connections and personalized discipleship. There's an emphasis on biblical literacy, robust teaching, and an application to your daily life. Discipleship involves practical application of biblical principles to your daily life. One of the things that struck me um, when, as I've been doing some research lately on spiritual folks, folks that are spiritual, the question I have is, what are they looking for? And so I'm asking people, well, what is it about spirituality that intrigues you or, or that you feel like you're not getting in the church? And a big part of it has to do with this idea that we don't spend any time finding practical application to, of biblical principles to our daily lives. And so I want you to think about that as you're reading through Hebrews. Hebrews addresses everything from running the race to having discipline to continue the race to educating yourself and others as a believer, understanding what it is you believe and why you believe it, to emphasizing the fostering of community um, and deeper connections and personal discipleship, but also community spiritual development. All of things are, these things are right there in Hebrews. So, like I said, I'm working on a Bible study for Hebrews. Um, I'll let you know when I get that done. Thank you so much for joining me and hanging out with me for this series as I think through why we should all be theologians, a study of the letter to the Hebrews, where we've been talking about theological concepts of the Christian faith. And today we were talking about eschatology, uh, which is the study of end times, all things related to Jesus's coming again and uh, heaven and hell and all of that. I want you to look into that a little bit more, maybe find a book on it, but keep in mind where, uh, where that person's, what that person's spiritual filter might be. 
Follow me on Instagram at Cultural Christianity. Please support No More Silos on Patreon. Thank you to all of you who do. Uh, You will find resources for Bible studies there uh, that I've already posted and shared. Thank you so much for your support and prayers and for joining me today. Have a blessed rest of your day. Thank you.